Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're Solution Architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dive into topics of interest. Hello, my name's Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 58 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And joining me today is fellow solution architect and Melbourneian, Tom McMeekham. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Shane. Great to be back behind the microphone with you. Now, look, it's been a while, Tom. I reached out to you thinking you'd be in the same city as me, and I get a reply at some weird time. And don't worry, my phone was on silent. So what's happening in the last few months since you've joined us here? Yeah, Shane. So always uh, trying to keep busy and, uh, you know, just uh, keeping f- having fun, um, you know, getting out there, meeting customers. Uh, l- recently, I've been just uh, delivering a number of different sessions as part of the Data Driven Insight Learning Series that we've been touring across Australia and New Zealand. You know, this is a great event. We brought together both uh, business and, and technical uh, data minded people where we looked at things around building a data driven business and the ingredients um, required to to be successful in that, and then also from a technical perspective, diving deep around things like Lake Formation, SageMaker, Redshift. Um, the highlight to me was was really just hearing from the customers. We had a number of voice of the customer panel sessions across various different industries: financial services, health, public sector, industrial, and just listening to how organisations are really uh, changing and gearing themselves to um, use data and position data as that strategic asset. They say data is a new oil. So yeah, sounds like a great event. Well, um, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, Auckland, definitely clocking up those frequent flyer points there. So look, it's daylight savings in this part of the world. And I'll probably say, you know, on my side, I feel instantly more productive or maybe even courageous on what I do after hours. I've been hitting the two wheels a bit more often uh, got out, did a bit of mountain biking last Friday after dinner. So look, long live summer. Yeah, absolutely, Shane. Great time of year down in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, no crashes your side yet on the bike? Look, uh, not big enough to mention. Look, I've had a few uh, close calls, but yeah. You know, maybe you're not pushing the bike hard enough. Uh, are you getting softer in your old age, Shane? I'm going to go with I'm getting wiser, Tom. <laughs> No comment. Look, so Tom, you join us here today for an update show. So today in this episode of AWS Tech Chat, we're going to pause following our messaging special and come at you with a raft of short, sharp, and important updates that have occurred in the last month. And at the time of recording, that's September and October of 2019. And being Tech Chat, we'll cover these at the level you expect, but more importantly, ask the hard, so what, and why questions. Now, Tom, before we get into updates, let's quickly look at some news. Yeah, that's right, Sange. So this show is for the builders. And speaking of builders, coming up, there are plenty of events that we, as we lead into reInvent. You know, summits are done across the globe uh, for this year. But, you know, all hope is not lost if you're, if you're after some free um, AWS educational and, uh, and learning series events like I was just on around Australia and New Zealand. So what I would recommend you do if, you, if you're keen to understand what's happening and, and get your finger on the pulse is to put AWS events into your favorite search engine. And, and um, in there, you should be able to find um, uh, relevant events appropriate across your local geography. Um, there's going to be either online events or even maybe even an on-demand session or two coming up. Yeah, look, and at the moment, if being honest, this is probably going to be your best bet. So Pete and I spoke about reInvent in the last episode. And look, whilst we're still working on the finer details, Tech Chat will be at reInvent. So that's exciting with the aim to deliver reInvent content and insights in a more timely manner than what we have done in the past. So it'd be good to see you all there. You know, if you are going to reInvent, drop us a mail, 
awstechchat at amazon.com. And depending on the response we get over the coming episodes, it will dictate our movements over the course of the week and potentially a meetup. Yeah, so just uh, quickly taking a look at uh, region and, and AZ counts, we're sitting static of 22 regions with the recent addition of Bahrain um, and also sitting at 69 AZs. Our edge locations as well, staying at a, um, at a static of, of what we talked about in the previous episode of 191. So look, speaking of edge locations, I didn't mention Tom, but as soon as we record today, I am like racing out the door to deliver at a customer a 400 level session on CloudFront. So we better make this show sharp and to the point or should I say to the edge? <laughs> I see what you did there, Shane. Well, given we are limit time limited, let's crack into it. Um, but let me ask you a quick question about sh- CloudFront, Shane. Uh, tell me one reason why you would use Lambda at the edge. Ooh, so look, that's not really a CloudFront question, but it is you know, really related. And as I was you know, prepping for this session, I came to realize how awesome Lambda at edge is. So look, I'm going to say my favorite party trick is probably A-B testing. Um, you know, you'd be able to leverage Lambda at the edge as a programmable front for CloudFront, being able to use different CloudFront distributions. So look, Tom, that's just one of many things. Perhaps content delivery is a future episode for TechChat. But Tom, as you said, let's crack into it. So let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So we talk about AWS being a pretty robust platform today. You know, it's matured. There are plenty of levers to do almost anything. And this first update is another one of those levers. S3 cross-region replication has been a thing for ages. I actually use it for myself. I do. Let me let me guess. It's a, is it home-related? It is. So you would be right. So look, we both have families. Families take pictures. And my pipeline for my pictures at my house is a UNC-based share, which lives on a NAS, you know, like a Synology NAS, RAID 10 with a hot spare. It syncs to S3. S3 triggers Lambda. If the file's a JPEG and not raw, it's passed via recognition. The object detection is greater than 80%. The what recognition believes it sees is written to the JPEG exif tags. But I also replicate at the bucket level from my default region, which is AP Southeast 2, Sydney, to AP Southeast 1, which is Singapore. That's some pretty uh, serious data retention going on there, Shane. I like what you're doing on there around the indexing for your photos and, and capturing all the objects that's been detected. Um, yeah, really great stuff. Yeah, look, it's not bad. And look, I had all sorts of PowerShell glue running beforehand when I had a server in my telco rack at home. The indexing is really good, you know, recognition into the JPEG EXIF tags. I use Pwingo, which is a free open source PHP based front end that allows me to index on tags, but no doubt there are others out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, we might be getting a little bit off track here. I digress. I digress. Let's, let's bring it back. <laughs> It looks like, so you chose Singapore as a place to replicate your data. Why was that? Yeah, look, I did. And that's not because S3 isn't reliable. You know, after all, 11 nines of durability. But because, to be honest, I don't trust myself. You know, I wanted another tier. It's one thing for durability, but durability doesn't account for humans. So that's when I set up S3 using cross-region replication because that's a lever at that stage I had available. And now look, we've got a new lever um, available in S3. It's called S3 Single Region Replication. Built on S3 cross-region replication, S3 now supports uh, automatic and asynchronous replication of newly uploaded S3 objects to a destination bucket within the same region. Yeah, so with S3 single region replication, new objects uploaded to an Amazon S3 bucket are configured for replication at the bucket prefix or object tag levels. Replicated objects can be owned by the same AWS account as original 
or by different accounts to protect from accidental deletion. Awesome. Hey, Shane, is it, is it safe to assume that the process uh, is similar to cross-region replication? Yeah, look, it is pretty similar. So obviously you can do this programmatically, but I went ahead and had a play in the console and it is simple as select your bucket, click on management and follow the wizard. And you now get asked about S3 cross-region replication and S3 single region replication. One thing you must do with any bucket replication is enabling versioning on the bucket. Versioning means keeping multiple variants or as the name implies, versions of an object in the same bucket. We aren't going to get into versioning here, but for example, you can have two objects with the same key, but different version IDs, such as photo.gif. You know, one might be version 11111 and the other photo.gif could be version 12121212. Other than that, the process is exactly the same. And there are reasons why single region replication makes sense. Yeah, that's right. It is. It is. Single region replication helps address data sovereignty, compliance requirements by keeping a copy of your objects in the same region as the origin. Look, lastly, it's a risk versus cost thing. You know, what is the risk that S3 will lose your data? Remember, S3 is 11 nines durable and four nines available. Do you need a higher SLA? And remember, there is data transit costs involved in cross-region replication. Again, this all comes back to choice and it's just another lever that customers have. Quickly before we wrap up, when an S3 object is replicated using single region replication, the metadata, access control list, and the objects tags associated with the objects are also part of the replication. Once single region replication is configured on a source bucket, any changes to the object, metadata, ACLs, or object tags trigger a new replication to the destination bucket. S3 single region replication is available in all regions. Next, I believe, Tom, we have a new member in the EC2 GPU instance family. Exciting. Yes, Shane, introducing the EC2 G4 instances now available for customers to start using in limited regions. The G4 instances are equipped by the NVIDIA T4 GPUs and are optimized to provide cost-effective machine learning inference, which can represent a huge trunk of overall operational costs for machine learning. So you can use these to perform inference on intensive ML application deployments, such as image classification, object detection, recommendation engines, natural language processing, or the things that need access to low-level GPU software libraries. Additionally, these instances can also be used as a cost-effective option for graphic-intensive applications such as remote graphic workstations, CAD design, video transcoding, game streaming, and they come with all the support of the latest DirectX, uh, OpenGL, OpenCL, CUDA, and Microsoft DXR libraries. The G4 instances are powered by an AWS custom second-generation Intel Xeon Scalable Cascade Lake processors with up to uh, 64 vCPUs available to them. You also, as you scale up your instance, have, a, have an option to have access to a single or multi-GPU configuration. And, and like all new EC2 instances, these are built on the AWS Nitro system. Interesting, Shane, there will also be a bare metal instance, not available just yet, but, but not too far away. Uh, and this will provide a whopping 100 gigabits of throughput for networking, 96 vCPUs, 8 NVIDIA GPUs, 384 gigabytes of host memory, and 1.8 terabytes of local NVMe storage available to you. So Shane, in preparing for this episode, it got me thinking into what the innovation has been occurring and the releases we've made available to customers over the years. Shane, did you know that the G4s are the seventh generation GPU-backed instance family released? Shane, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, when was the first GPU instances um, that we made available to customers? Uh, so look, I'm not sure here, Tom, but I'm going to have a stab at this. So look, the G instance family was available before the P instances. So look, let's go with G1 instances back in, I think, 2012. 
Oh, close, Shane, but uh, a little bit off. So it was it was uh, the CG1 instance, otherwise known as the cluster GPU instance. Uh, now, this instance family was released in November 2010, and it was backed by the NVIDIA Tesla M2050, or otherwise known as the Fermi GPU, with Intel and the Halem processors. Uh, following on from that, we have, we've launched a number of different instances. In 2013, we released the G2 instances. September 2016, we uh, first launched the P2 instances. Um, and then um, we've really started to ramp up our innovation here for customers over the last two years. Now, in 2017, we released the G3 instances. In, in um, October 2017, just after the G3 instances, we released the P3 instances. Uh, and then in 2018, late 2018, the G3S instances available. And now in October 2019, we have the G4 instances available to customers. So it's interesting to see how much innovation is happening in the GPU space. And certainly, um, it's no surprise that the, the interest around machine learning is really driving and fueling that innovation for our customers. It's exciting to see um, uh, this innovation and the pace that's, that's really ramping up there. So I mentioned uh, earlier that the G4 instances are available in limited regions at the moment, uh, and the regions are US East, uh, North Virginia, Ohio, US West, Origin, North California, in Europe, Frankfurt, Ireland, and London, and in Asia Pacific, we have Seoul and Tokyo. Uh, within the AW, those AWS regions, uh, you can purchase and consume those EC2 instances via on-demand, reserved, and also spot instances. We also have G4 instances um, are, are accessible within services like Amazon SageMaker and also Amazon ECS has announced support as well. You know, I wonder, there was a thing, I don't know if you follow uh, GPUs much, Tom, called the Bitcoin mining tax. So, you know, on uh, domestic GPUs, so your GeForces and your Radeons, you know, you're going to pay that extra price because, you know, by high demand. I wonder, you know, if there is the equivalent in the machine learning space, there is such a demand for GPU accelerated workloads these days. I'd love to understand what the prices are and how they've gone. Maybe someone can write in and let us know. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be an interesting data point. Now, Pete and I spoke about this in the previous show in the news section, Tom, but how often do you hear of customers raising support tickets, maybe sometimes urgently to get limits changed? And before you answer that, I wonder if there are any Tech Chat listeners out there going, aha, that's me. Yeah, Shane, Yeah, it's very common conversations that I have with my customers. Okay, so look... It's more of a thing, particularly when customers may need to leverage another AZ. And just remember, listeners, you shouldn't be more than 50% of your capacity in a given AZ. Should something unforeseen happen or perhaps a scaling event needs to happen, you know that unplanned marketing campaign, etc. And you can monitor your limits via the describe-ec2-instance-limits API call. And my recommendation is your monitoring platform should always be monitoring your limits. And it's an important piece of telemetry that you should be consuming. And just like, you know, in the old world, you might monitor the status of a RAID array or the hardware status via SNMP. This is really important stuff. Now, we've made some changes to make limits, at least on the EC2 front, a bit easier. And Tom, today I want to talk to you about vCPU-based on-demand instance limits, which I think will make it easier to manage limits. So in the past, before October 24, you can opt in to the new way of managing limits. Um, but post October 24, this is the new world. So let me give you a little bit of an example, something to be mindful of what's, what's changing here. So currently you manage the limits on a per instance type. For example, the limit of uh, say uh, C5 4XLs is 10. But say you need uh, some C5 2XLs. In the past, you needed to manage these limits independently 
uh, to the C5 uh, 4XLs too. All right, so we have over 100 different permutations of instance types. We launch more all of the time. You know, you just mentioned the previous instances. You know, we've got the A-series, one of my favorite, and then all the different permutations within these instances. Yeah, Shane. So you, you hit the nail on the head here around the the amount of heavy lifting that customers are doing around managing those different permutations of instances. You know, it's clear that it's becoming untenable here to manage these uh, across that wide variety of instance types that we we have available for customers. Uh, so we're trying to make things simpler for customers. You know, if we if we go back to the example before, a C5 4XL has 16 vCPUs and a C5 2XL has eight vCPUs. Now this change buckets EC2 instance limits into a general and specialized instance types. One limit that covers the usage of standard instance type families for instance type families such as A, C, D, H, I, M, R, T, and Z. And another limit of specialized instance families that manage uh, for specialized type or workload types like uh, instance uh, F, G, P's, and also the X instant family types. Yeah, so look, now you can specify a total amount of vCPUs for these general and specialized instance classes and you manage them accordingly. This means other than being simpler to manage, it also means as we introduce new instance classes or families, you know, you don't need to constantly be modifying your limits. So the default limits in this world is 1,152 vCPUs for standard instance families and 128 vCPUs for the specialized families. In case you're wondering what you're using today, we have a vCPU calculator and you'll be able to track your limits using CloudWatch. Now, with this change, we no longer have total instance limits governing usage. Hence, the Describe Account Attributes API will no longer return the max instance value. Instead, you can now use the Service Quota APIs to retrieve information about EC2 limits. What if you have an existing account, Tom? Yeah, good question, Shane. Um, existing accounts will be migrated to the new world between October 24 and November 7, 2019. You can look at the EC2 FAQ to see the date in which your account will be migrated to this new structure. EC2 vCPU limits are available in all AWS commercial regions except AWS China regions. Okay, so one more thing actually to point out here. So the default limit is 1,152 vCPUs for standard and 128 vCPUs for specialized instance families. But what if your existing account is more than 1,152 or more than 128 vCPUs in the specialized families? During this process, the migration in from instance limits to vCPUs will, will ensure that you are not limit constrained. But again, please check the service quotas API to retrieve information about EC2 limits post this date. Now, look, whilst we're talking vCPU limits and monitoring hygiene, we've launched another AWS solution to monitor vCPU-based on-demand instance limits. The solution checks the service quotas for your vCPU usage against limits and notifies you when you approach vCPU limits. Notification is either done via email or Slack, you know, a lot of people use Slack, takes less than five minutes to, to deploy and comes in the form of CloudFormation. The crux of the solution is a Lambda function that runs every five minutes. The function checks the service quotas to retrieve vCPU usage and the limit data for every AWS region. The function calculates vCPU usage against limits to determine whether the status is okay, which is less than 80% utilization, warn between 80 and 99% utilization or error 100% utilization. Even if it's not for you, it's CloudFormation, so I encourage you to take a look. 
So Shane, uh, shifting gears a little bit, you know, I'm always impressed by the flexibility that Amazon DynamoDB provides for our customers, you know, providing a fully managed key value document database that can easily scale in just a few requests per millions or uh, and all the way up to millions of requests per second. An example of this is Prime Day in 2019, where we saw DynamoDB support multiple high-traffic sites and systems, including Alexa, the Amazon.com sites, and all 442 Amazon fulfillment centers. Across the 48 hours of Prime Day, these sources made, wait for it, 7.11 trillion calls to the DynamoDB API, peaking at 45.4 million requests per second. Yeah, that, that's that's incredible stats to hear, Shane. Um, over the years, it's 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 really amazing to see the innovation that's been happening in our much loved NoSQL offering. You know, from on-demand capacity, global tables, point-in-time recovery, asset transactions. Um, you know, it's really been uh, exciting space to to see DynamoDB grow over the years. Um, you know, and, and and switching that mindset, and I have this conversation with a number of customers who have traditionally come from a relational database background, and shifting that mindset to to considering NoSQL. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a path that's well trodden by customers, but certainly it's not a decision that's made um, lightly. Um, and you know, there's some great material out there for our customers to to look at to understand how DynamoDB works under the covers, um, and also how to um, how to build data models to apply uh, within different use cases, from time series um, use cases to standard uh, key value pair uh, use cases. Uh, but to help you even further, um, the DynamoDB team has, has recently released a preview tool uh, called the NoSQL Workbench for DynamoDB. Now, this is a free client-side application available for you to install on your Windows or Mac OS uh, endpoint. And it's it's really designed to help you design, visualize your data models, and then run queries against your data to help um, generate some code that you can then uh, you can then use as boilerplate code to uh, lift into your application. Now, using the NoSQL Workbench is really easy to get started. Once installed, uh, connect it to your AWS account, and in the data modeler, you can start to create your first data model. Uh, you can use within this data model to create tables, indexes, etc. And then once you've built this data model, uh, you can then start to insert some data to it, uh, and the cont- which can also help you visualize the data model uh, to really dive into and, and better understand uh, making sure that the data model that you've built um, and how that aligns to the behavior of the application. Now, you can do this by um, modeling indexes, for example, and, and understanding how your uh, global secondary indexes are going to work um, and influence the behavior when you interact with that, um, with, with, when your application interacts with, with your DynamoDB environment. Now, once you're happy with, with this data model that you've built, um, it's quite easy to commit this um, directly to DynamoDB. So within the tool, you can push that into the DynamoDB service um, and, uh, and continue uh, from a development standpoint. Now, the final part, um, and I mentioned this uh, just briefly um, earlier, is, is the operational, oh, oh, sorry, operation builder. Now, the operation builder um, is effectively, it helps you build um, op- operations to interact with, with your DynamoDB uh, tables. So you can use the full syntax, like get items, uh, doing a, a table scan, for example, uh, update items. And allowing you to add conditions and, and child expressions to really start to quite easily build up the operations that you need to execute um, in, um, for your application. Now, you can execute these operations on your DynamoDB table directly from the tool. Uh, and then once you're happy, you can you can generate the code um, and then lift that into your application. Now, at the moment, within the preview, uh, there's support for Python, JavaScript, Node, JS, um, and Java. 
um, but more to come um, in the in the not too distant future. Now, for the developers, they when they interacting with DynamoDB, they have a choice of either using um, the higher or lower level interfaces. Now, the lower level interfaces um, uh, are really there for working with DynamoDB uh, and provide uh, client side classes and methods that correspond directly to that lower level uh, DynamoDB. Uh, API. Now, what I see is is many customers or, and developers uh, choose to use the high level interface provided by the AWS SDK for Java and .NET to simplify the the development of interacting with DynamoDB. You know, the high level interfaces for DynamoDB let you define the relationships between objects in in your program, and the database tables uh, enable you to store those a, as objects. Um, so allowing you to write object-centric code uh, rather than using database-centric code. It's a really quite a, a great experience for, for developers there. So speaking of developing with DynamoDB, there's recently been an update to the DynamoDB mapper class within the Java SDK, and it's been there to support optimistic locking DynamoDB transaction API calls. This is off the back of Enhancers made last year at reInvent to provide developers with ACID transaction support to help maintain data correctness in an easier manner. Yeah, that's right, Shane. So it's a great update to the SDK for Java developers. The DynamoDB mapper class allows you to map your client-side classes to the Amazon DynamoDB tables that you have built and access your tables, perform various create, read, update, delete operations, and execute queries. So optimistic locking helps developers ensure that the transactional rights that they're calling to the transaction API are being performed on the most recent version of an item within your DynamoDB table. Good call out. Transactions really help developers simplify their code to support workflows and business logic that require adding, updating, or deleting multiple items as a single all-or-nothing operation. Now, Tom, if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me how I can use API Gateway to access private endpoints... Uh, would you be a rich man? Probably wouldn't, but I'd probably be able to buy you a coffee, maybe a cookie also. So API Gateway is our service for creating and publishing, maintaining monitoring and securing REST and WebSocket APIs at any scale. Yes, look, it's a really good service, easy to get started, and I'll say somewhat mature in terms of AWS services. I say somewhat mature as there are times where you want to access a private API endpoint, and that's what this update addresses. So you can now associate one or more VPC endpoints to a private API, and API Gateway will create and manage Route 53 alias records necessary for easily invoking these private APIs. Yeah, so okay, so so it is a security thing here. So with this update, you can securely expose REST APIs to resources only within your VPCs via and VPC endpoints. Yeah, so look, in order to do this, in API Gateway, define your resource policies along with VPC endpoint policies to control access between VPCs and private APIs. When you want to disable private DNS on the VPC endpoint and allow access to a private API via this VPC endpoint, you can use this feature to get an endpoint alias for your private API. Worth noting, and look, it makes sense here, but still worth calling out in case it's not obvious. Private APIs are accessible only within your VPCs, and the resource policies must allow access from the VPCs and VPC endpoints you've configured, and the API won't be edge optimized because you know, you're accessing this API in a private manner. Yeah, that all sounds good and I'm following here. Um, but how do you connect to the private API, assuming the endpoint is going to be different? You're spot on there. You know, I read the doco and then I went and built this out. So your endpoints are going to be listed in your VPC endpoints. So after you log in to the Amazon VPC console, assuming you created a VPC endpoint for API Gateway, which is execute-API in the details pane, you'll see five values in the DNS field. 
The first three are public DNS names for your API and the other two are private DNS names for it. So you'll be able to access your API in a private manner via HTTPS, the REST API ID, .execute API.region.amazon.aws.com forward slash stage. And that's about it. So whilst it's an API gateway update, realistically, it's a plumbing update allowing you to access your APIs in a private manner either within your VPC or even on-premises over Direct Connect. This feature is available in all regions where API Gateway private APIs are available, except Middle East, Bahrain. It wouldn't be an update show in 2019 without talking about containers. So fear not, a little bit of container news. Tom, what's your IDE of choice these days? So uh, it, my IDE of choice changes from, from week to week, and uh, at the moment, it's PyCharm. PyCharm, all right. I actually haven't heard about that. Probably something to have a look at. So look, for me, it's VS Code or Visual Studio Code. So what has this to do with containers, you may be thinking? Well, IntelliSense, is it? You know IntelliSense? Yeah, Shane, it does ring a bell, but yeah, perhaps for, for our audience, um, please, please fill us in. Okay, look, the first time I got the grips with IntelliSense in Visual Studio, I thought it was awesome. It is still awesome. But look, you know, from the Microsoft marketing blurb, IntelliSense is a general term for a variety of code editing features, including code completion, parameter info, quick info, and member lists. So now IntelliSense is available in a variety of programming languages. Still not 100% here, Shane. So, so talking about VS Code, IntelliSense, ECS. Yeah, okay. So code completion. So so let's join the dots. So with this update, IntelliSense for Amazon ECS offers auto-completion, flagging errors and missing required properties in creating task definitions. Along with IntelliSense for writing a Docker file and CloudFormation templates, this simplifies the creation of all artifacts needed for an ECS deployment. We have a step-by-step -step guide on how to install IntelliSense for ECS, and the update contains a list of task definitions which are supported by IntelliSense. So in summary, Tom, IntelliSense is good, ECS is good, and this just makes writing those task definitions one step easier. And I know this is going to help me spend less time validating and linting my configuration and more time being productive, which is all a good thing. Absolutely. That's where we want to be focused. Tom, there is plenty to talk about, but I think it's time we need to end the show. So today we covered a round of updates that occurred in the month of September and October in the year 2019. We started the show with an announcement around S3 single region replication. With this feature, you can now automatically and asynchronously replicate newly uploaded S3 objects to a destination bucket in the same AWS region. Just remember, you need to enable versioning. Yeah, and I introduced uh, the new EC2 G4 instances with the NVIDIA T4 Tensor Core GPUs, uh, which are the most effective GPU platform for uh, machine learning inference and graphic intensive applications. And you can find them in limited regions. Limits are changing on EC2. We've made them easier with vCPU based on demand limits. Much easier to manage. All you need to do is remember we have two limits post October 21st. One limit that governs the usage of standard instance families and the default is 1,152 and the other limit for specialized instance families and that's 128 vCPUs. Yeah, and check out the NoSQL Workbench for DynamoDB. It's a great tool to help design to simplify working with DynamoDB and getting started when you're working through the data modeling phase. And also the DynamoDB mapper class that's been updated in the Java SDK uh, now supports uh, optimistic locking. Private endpoints and API gateway, it's now a thing. You can now associate one or more VPC endpoints to a private API and API gateway will create and manage Route 53 alias records necessary for easily invoking the private APIs. And finally, we close the show of two things I like. 
ECS and Visual Studio Code, with the former now providing IntelliSense for ECS. Tom, a bit of a quick, short, sharp show today. As usual, great to have you back on the airways with me. It's been a lot of fun. As always, Shane, thanks for having me. All right, listeners, keep us honest. Feedback is always welcome. AWS Tech Chat at Amazon.com. Join us again in a few weeks' time, to which we'll be back with a deep dive of your choosing. And remember, we'll be live at reInvent, so please drop us a message if you're going to attend. And until next time, bye for now. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com. Dot com.